0: Sincerity will not rescue anyone from their sins or from eternal death. For God says there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Sincerity, dear ones, does not mysteriously transform error into truth. For example, many people very sincerely believed for many years that the world, the earth, was flat. Their sincerity did not make the world round. Sincerity does not change error into truth. In fact, eternal life itself hinges upon what you believe. Not only the way in which you live, but... What you believe, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. What you believe, dear ones, is absolutely essential. Well, what about this statement? It's not so much what you believe that matters, but how you live. Such a statement assumes a dichotomy, albeit a false dichotomy, between doctrine on the one hand and practical Christian living on the other hand. A statement like this actually sets the truth of God which is doctrine, in opposition to the holiness of God, which is practical Christian living. As if the Most High God could lie about the truth and yet remain holy. Dear brothers and sisters, the truth is this. Neither believing the truth nor living the truth is optional in the Christian life. It is not an either-or situation. It is a both-and situation. You must believe the truth and you must live the truth. In fact, God makes it absolutely clear that what you believe is fundamental and foundational to the way in which you will both speak and behave. What you believe will affect your actions and your words. We find in Proverbs 23, 7, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And the Lord Jesus Himself said, Out of the abundance of the heart, what is inside man, what he thinks, what he believes, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Dear ones, let the words of the Lord forever be branded upon your hearts and what He said in regard to the necessity of believing the truth. Jesus said, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The truth, not your sincerity, not your good intentions, but the truth shall make you free. As we continue the series through the epistle of 1 John, we come to the third test by which you may know and have infallible assurance before God that you are a Christian. We have considered the test of obedience. We have looked at the test of love for the brethren. And today we will consider the test of orthodoxy. Do you believe? For orthodox simply means straight teaching. Do you believe the straight teaching... Concerning Christ as he is revealed in the Holy Scriptures. You see, dear ones, if you would have confidence that you know the living God and are known by the living God, you must not only have orthopraxy, that is, straight Christian living, but you must also have orthodoxy, straight Christian believing and doctrine. the Gnostic false teachers against whom the Apostle John writes this very letter in 1 John, these Gnostic false teachers based their assurance of knowing God upon, as we've said before, upon their own religious experiences, upon their own feelings. And I would simply say, as I've said before, One will never have confidence that he is a Christian. One will never have assurance that he is a Christian or she is a Christian by looking to his or her feelings. I'm convinced that people that I have counseled as I have worked through this issue in my own life, in my own Christian walk, that looking to your feelings will only lead to a bungee-jumping type of Christian life. You'll be down to the pits one day because you feel that way, and the next moment you'll be up soaring with the eagles when you appeal to the feelings. You know, the Apostle John gives to us and gives to his readers a much better way of evaluating this whole question of assurance of salvation. He actually turns his readers away from their feelings and to the observable fruit manifested in the Christian life. He turns them, first of all, to their obedience, that a Christian is one who earnestly desires and strives to keep God's commandments. Secondly, John mentioned that a Christian is one who earnestly desires and strives to love the brethren. John is not saying that in order for one to have assurance of his or her salvation that they must be perfectly obeying the commandments of God or that they must perfectly love the brethren. Certainly, that's our goal, but none of us will reach it in this life. And that's why we have 1 John chapter 1. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's why we have 1 John chapter 2 verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The point that I'd like to make before we get into the body of the text itself is just simply this. These tests of obedience and love, dear ones, are not the basis upon which you are made acceptable in the sight of an absolutely holy God. They are tests for assurance of salvation. They are not qualifications or conditions for justification. You are not declared righteous in the sight of God on the basis of any works of righteousness that you can do because you cannot give to God any work that He would receive as absolutely righteous. You cannot give to Him one single work, nor can I, that He would say is perfect. And therefore, we cannot be justified. We cannot be made acceptable. We cannot be approved before God on the basis of our own works of righteousness. That is why we need the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we stand condemned in our own works of righteousness. And were it not for His perfect works, we would perish for all eternity in hell. And so, dear ones, these tests are for your assurance, not your justification. I pray that these tests will be, in fact, an assurance to you, even if you are struggling in your Christian walk at this time, Do you, can you earnestly say that I I desire and I am seeking and striving to obey the commandments of God? Can you say, I earnestly desire and am seeking and striving to love my brethren, even if I fall short? You see, that's completely unnatural. Unnatural for one who is not a Christian, to want to obey the commandments of God, to want to love fellow Christians. That's unnatural. In fact, it's supernatural for one to do those things. It takes a work of God's grace in a person's life. That is a mighty testimony before man and before your own heart dear ones that you belong to God and that is why the apostle john appeals to those types of tests rather than to your subjective feelings as we consider 1 john chapter 2 verses 18 through 27 today we're going to look at this third test the test of orthodoxy And the Apostle John divides this test of orthodoxy into three categories, which we'll be looking at briefly today. The first category is this, that Christians abide in Christ's church. The first test of orthodoxy, the first category within the test of orthodoxy, is that Christians abide in Christ's church. The second category is this, that Christians confess Christ. And the third category is that Christians are taught by the Word and by the Spirit. Let's look at these three categories this Lord's Day. First of all, then, Christians abide in Christ's church. Look with me at 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. In the churches to which the Apostle John was writing this particular letter, a separation was occurring within these churches. And as a result of the separation, these churches were not growing in numbers, but were in reality shrinking in numbers. There was no addition of members to the church, but rather a subtraction of members from the church. There was not unity amongst all the members of the church, but a division within the church. But what is most interesting about this situation is the response of the Apostle John to the situation. He considers this division, he considers this subtraction of members, he uh, considers the separation within the congregation to have a very positive goal in view. The division is actually separating the chaff from the wheat. The goats... From the sheep, the sons of darkness from the sons of light. For in these churches, the Gnostic false teachers, and I might simply again mention Gnostic. This is a particular heresy that was prevalent at the just at the very beginnings, as it were, of church history. Gnosticism, it comes from the Greek word gnosis which has to do with these people believing that they received a special knowledge directly from God, independent from the Scripture, independent from apostolic teaching. They believed that on the basis of this knowledge that they knew God in a way that no other person knew God. These Gnostic false teachers and their crowd were departing from the church of Jesus Christ. They were revealing, as it were, their true colors and that they were not persevering in the faith, but were turning their backs on the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, walking away from the true church. But to the contrary, the sheep of Christ's fold we're listening to the voice of the Good Shepherd. As the Good Shepherd spoke through apostolic preaching and teaching, as He spoke through the faithful ministers of the Gospel, the true sheep were listening to the Good Shepherd. As we read from John chapter 10, My sheep hear My voice, and they follow Me. Even so, these Christians were following the Good Shepherd and remaining within the church. You see, beloved, Christians will not leave the church of Jesus Christ for a false church. And if they are in a church that does not proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, they will leave it to find a true church. My sheep hear my voice. They will not follow a hireling, a false shepherd. They will be awakened and they will leave if they are in such a church. You know, the attitude of the Christian should be like that of the Apostle Peter. You remember in John chapter 6, the Lord Jesus gave this particular sermon this message to the, to the disciples, not to his twelve, but to the, the greater number of followers of Christ. And as a result of what he said to these followers of his, the scripture says in John chapter 6, verse 66, that many of those who followed him stopped following him. They withdrew from him. And the Lord Jesus turned around and looked at his twelve disciples. And he asked the twelve, Do you also want to go? And the Apostle Peter answered for everyone. And he answered for every Christian since then, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where will we go, God, if we do not remain within your church? Where will we receive the words of eternal life? But from faithful shepherds, under shepherds, who proclaim the truth on behalf of the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. Carefully note, dear ones here, the Apostle's attitude concerning the present lack of growth within these churches. It's, it's most interesting. Here you have division, separation, subtraction of members. And he says that there's a beneficial purpose in all of this. You know, such a view would be unheard of in churches today. Such a view would be anathema to pastors, so many pastors today to have this particular insight In today's churches, unless you are adding new members to the church on a monthly basis, and unless you are growing, growing, and growing, you're just not doing it right. In fact, if there is division within a congregation and some families decide to leave, That's evidence for sure that you're not doing it right in many churches today. A small church is a sure indication of a dying church in the minds of many. However, dear ones, John promotes an altogether different perspective. A small church or one that might even be losing members may in fact be an indication rather of a living church, not a dying church, because they refuse to budge from the truth of God, because they refuse to compromise or to dilute the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They may actually lose members, You see, it all depends upon why people are leaving. Are people leaving because they will not listen to the truth, like the Gnostics? Or are they leaving because they do want to listen to the truth, but they're not hearing it, like the Reformers who left the Roman Catholic Church, like Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Knox, and many many other reformers for a second dear ones consider the church of Philadelphia the seven churches that John addresses in the in chapters 2 and 3 of revelation the church of Philadelphia this quality this characteristic is said about the church of Philadelphia there are only two churches out of the seven for which the lord did not have some something upon which to criticize or to rebuke them for. Two churches. Philadelphia was one of them. But he says about this church that they have little strength. Little strength. It does not mean that they had little spiritual strength. What it's referring to is the fact that they were most likely small in numbers. A little strength. But God had opened a great door for them. A door which no man would be able to close. Little strength. A little church. But a living church. Unlike the larger churches, perhaps, who had a name that they were alive, but they were, in fact, dead. We can think of various kinds of scenarios that would illustrate this truth, we certainly know even within our own congregation in Prince George, many of you have left, but especially the church in Prince George, left a church, in that particular case, left a false church that did not believe in a very essential doctrine as it relates to God. This church did not confess that God is triune. They did not believe in the Trinity. They believed in the oneness doctrine. What were these brothers and sisters to do? Were they to remain in that situation or were they to leave after having talked with their elders, their pastors, trying to bring about reformation within the church, pointing out the error they were obligated to leave because the truth was not being proclaimed. Or you can imagine again a church where there is the truth being proclaimed, where the, the worship of God is promoted and, and proclaimed in a pure way, where the psalms of God are sung and not the uninspired hymns of men. Where the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ goes forth with all of its glory, not condoning, not deluding, and making it into a man-made salvation, but giving God all the glory for saving sinful men. And people might be and are continuously offended by the proclamation of the truth, and they may leave. Different scenarios. People both leaving situations, but for different reasons. What was the cause of people leaving the churches to whom John was writing? They were leaving because they did not want to listen to the truth concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. They were wolves in sheep's clothing and had designs upon the flock of God. In fact, the Apostle John calls these false teachers antichrists in verse 18. They were antichrists. Now, that doesn't mean that they sought to replace Christ. doesn't mean that they thought they were Christ reincarnated. It means that they were hostile to Christ. It means that they were against Christ. If someone says that they are anti-communist, doesn't mean that they're trying to replace communism or to to represent communism it means that they're opposed to communism and so these particular people John says were antichrists and even though the antichrist that Biblical personage that we find in prophetic literature had not yet appeared, John says. John says that the Antichrist is coming. There is an Antichrist, John says. But these Antichrists, plural, simply herald the coming of the Antichrist, singular. There will be another passage in chapter 4 where we'll spend a little more time talking about the Antichrist, that personal uh, Antichrist. So we will not go into detail today concerning that. But carefully note here, dear ones, that these Antichrists were not reckoned as Orthodox members of the Church of Jesus Christ. Why? Because they turned their backs on the church of Christ. They turned their backs on apostolic preaching. They turned their backs upon the sacraments and the government of Christ's church. In other words, these antichrists did not persevere in the faith. And when they left the church of Christ, they left the faith of Christ, according to the Apostle John. He could not separate one from the other. And you know, even though John is addressing a much smaller church as a result of the departure of these antichrists, John has not been moaning the fact that attendance has dropped Nor that contributions will be down. He actually sees, as I've said before, God's purpose in this, that God is distinguishing between those who belong to Him and those who do not belong to Him. Genuine believers, dear ones, are orthodox in their view of the Church of Jesus Christ. Christians, listen closely. Christians do not view the church of Jesus Christ as expendable, as optional, or simply as expedient when there's a family crisis or when there's a wedding to perform. 53% of baby boomers in a survey recently conducted indicated that it was, quote, more important to be alone and to meditate than to worship with others a survey conducted in the United States. Furthermore, respondents were asked if they agreed or disagreed with this statement. People have God within them, so churches aren't really necessary. Sixty percent responded that they agreed with that statement. Sixty percent. Dear ones, let me say that it is indeed Satan's strategy And has always been his strategy to divide, to separate, and to lead an individual or a family from the church of Jesus Christ. And then to overcome them, overwhelm them, and conquer them. Lead them away from the safety and the security of the flock. Then pounce on them like a wolf upon a lamb. The Christian, however, is one who abides in the church of Jesus Christ one who identifies himself as a Christian, gathers himself each Lord's day to worship the living God with an acceptable praise with all of God's people. This is the mark of a Christian. He abides within the church. Second of all, we notice that Christians, John says, Christians confess Christ. In verses 20 through 23, John says, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Now, by that statement that Christians confess Christ, I do not mean that every person who confesses, I believe in Jesus Christ, is necessarily a Christian. Even the heretical Gnostics, these false teachers that John is writing about, could say, I believe in Jesus Christ. They did not deny that they believed in Jesus Christ. Many cults all around us profess, I believe in Jesus Christ. What John is saying is that Christians believe in the Christ of the Bible. Christians believe and cling to and confess the Lord Jesus Christ as he is revealed in the Holy Scriptures. You see, these Gnostic heretics had made a Christ of their own imagination. Through their mystical religious experiences, they claimed to have received the true knowledge concerning Christ. And it was this new and improved Christ in whom they believed. The old Christ of the Bible did not exactly fit their job description. And so, they made a Christ to fit their own liking. Thus, the Apostle John declares that these Gnostic false teachers did not actually confess Christ, but rather, John says, they denied Him. Look at verse 22. Who is a liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. John says these Gnostic false teachers do not confess the Christ of the Bible. They deny the Christ of the Bible. They had perverted the Christ that's revealed in Scripture. And therefore, they lied. They're liars. They have followed after their father, Satan, who is the father of all lies. How did these Gnostics pervert the true Christ into a false Christ? What did they believe? Well, in effect, they robbed the Lord Jesus Christ of his full deity and they robbed the Lord Jesus Christ of his full humanity. According to these antichrists, Jesus was conceived and born like any other man, but the body he received was not a real body of flesh and blood, because you remember the Gnostics believed that anything material was evil, only that which is spiritual was good, only that which is composed of spirit is good. Anything that you can touch, feel, or see is evil. That's what the Gnostics believed. And so they said Christ could not have had, Jesus could not have had a body, for he's a good man. And so they theorized that Christ was born with what they called a phantom body that looked real, but was not in fact real, flesh and blood. And they said that Christ lived and died in this phantom body upon the cross and He was never resurrected because, again, remember what the Gnostics believed. Matter is evil. Spirit is good. Why would they want to have the body resurrected? To, be, to, to die was for them to escape the prison of this body. Therefore, they did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ either. Another thing they did not believe in is that Christ's atonement upon the cross actually paid for sin. Actually delivered men and women and children from the guilt and power and penalty of sin. They believed that what the death of Christ accomplished was to set them free from this body. Not to set them free from sin. And they also did not believe that Jesus and Christ were the same person. They believed that the Christ was a spiritual being that was created by God and who at, at Jesus' baptism, the man Jesus, the spiritual Christ, came upon this man Jesus and stayed with him and, and helped him throughout his ministry and left him, before he was crucified. And so the Christ and Jesus were two separate persons, according to the Gnostics. That's why the Apostle John specifically says, who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Thus, these Gnostics, dear ones, rejected the miraculous incarnation and virgin birth of Christ. They rejected the substitutionary atonement of Christ. They rejected the resurrection of Christ as it's taught in Scripture. And so, the Christ in whom they believed was no more Christ than this pulpit is Christ. They might as well have believed that this pulpit could save them as to believe that a Christ of their own imagination could save them. Again, I emphasize to you that it is not your faith that saves. It is not your sincerity that saves. It is the object of your faith, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, that saves. For our faith and our sincerity will never be perfect here upon the earth. But it is the Lord Jesus Christ who sees even the weakness of our faith and of our sincerity and who rescues us and saves us from our sin. The Christ of the Bible, not a Christ of our own imagination though, And it is only that Christ that can save, dear ones. All religions do not lead to heaven. All roads do not lead to God. Jesus spoke of a very narrow road to heaven, but of a very broad road that leads to hell. And it was the Lord Jesus Christ himself who declared, I am the way, not one of the ways. I am the way, the truth. And the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. Yes, dear ones, biblical Christianity is narrow-minded. I would confess that. I would affirm that if somebody said, You Christians are narrow-minded. I'd say, absolutely, we are. We're as narrow as the Scripture is. You Christians are exclusive. Yes, we are. There is only one way to heaven and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not something that we formulated. It's not something that we thought up. It is what Almighty God who created all people has said. There's only one way unto Himself and that's through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if one does not confess allegiance to this Christ, if one does not trust in this Christ, the Christ of the Bible, to save him, if one does not follow this Christ, he is not a Christian regardless of what he may say. This is biblical Christianity, not a Christianity of one's own making. The Apostle John declares that Christians know all things in verse Twenty and twenty-one. He doesn't mean that they are omniscient. He means that these Christians know all things about the Christ that's revealed in the Bible, which these Gnostics themselves denied. And these Christians, he says, publicly have confessed this Christ before the congregation of God's people. And so we see the the second mark of orthodoxy. The first mark being that. Christians abide and remain in the church of Jesus Christ. The second mark is that Christians confess the Christ of the Bible. And the third mark is this that Christians are taught by the Word and the Spirit. Verses 24 through 27 Therefore let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He has promised us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from Him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in Him. Christians are taught... The third mark, Christians are taught by the Word and by the Spirit. These Gnostics claimed to have received a special anointing which gave them an inside track into the knowledge of God to which other Christians, they said, did not have access. Now, this was an elitist view of Christianity which declared that they were the haves and everybody else were the have-nots. One could not really know God, they said, without having the special religious experience, this mystical subjective experience, where you receive the special anointing from God. However, it was by the same special anointing of the Gnostics that they had perverted the true knowledge of God, the true knowledge of Christ, and the true knowledge of salvation. It was the special knowledge that they said they had that led them down the path to hell itself. Dear ones, there are many today who claim to have received knowledge of God's will from God by means of a special anointing. They stand up in churches today declaring, Thus saith the Lord, just as the prophets of old declared. But how can these modern-day prophets say with certainty? Or how can those who listen to them say with certainty that God has indeed spoken through them? How can you know for sure? We know for sure that the prophets who wrote the Scripture, who were inspired by the Holy Spirit, had to fulfill this test that all that they prophesied came true exactly as they prophesied. Deuteronomy 18, that was the test of a true prophet. He couldn't miss in one of his prophecies. If he missed in one of his prophecies, he was not a prophet of God. He was a false prophet and he was to be put to death for lying, for becoming one who was in rebellion against the Almighty God. Because false prophecy, according to Jeremiah, chapter 29, false prophecy is counseling rebellion against God. Will modern day prophets submit to that standard? I've heard many of them and they refuse to submit to that standard. But that's the standard which God gives concerning prophecy, concerning revelation. What we should hear, dear ones, from pulpits today is not "Thus saith the Lord," "Thus saith the Lord" of new prophecies, of new revelation, but rather what we should be hearing from the pulpits today is "It is written." The "It is written" of the old prophecies that are found in Holy Scripture. That we can be certain of. That we can base our life upon. That will never fail. God's Word, God says, though the flower grows, fades, and withers away, the Word of the Lord will abide forever. How will Christians be preserved from both ancient heresies and modern heresies According to this passage, they'll be preserved by the word of God, which is made known to you by the Spirit of God. Verse 24, he says, Therefore, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. The apostolic message, which you heard. Let that abide within you. And then they are also to listen to the words which the Apostle John... When he says, these things I have written to you, that is what you're to listen to. Not to all of these false teachers that are roaming around who have this new view of who Jesus is. The view of ancient Gnostics and the view of modern Gnostics has always been that inward experience, listen closely, Inward experience is more trustworthy and reliable than the word of God. That is one of the tenets of Gnosticism. And it, wherever one finds that tenet, one finds modern Gnosticism. Inner experience is more reliable than the objective standard of God's word. They are also to know, John says, that it is not only the message which you have heard and which I've written to you, but there is one other in verse 27, but the anointing which you have received from him. See, the Gnostics talked about this anointing they had received. But John says, you are the ones who have received the anointing. For the Holy Spirit lives and abides within you. And the evidence of that is that you follow the truth. The evidence is that you remain in the church. The evidence is that you confess the living Christ. And you are led by the word of God. And by the spirit of God as he illuminates your eyes to understand his word. That's the test. You know, if next Sunday I were to announce, we were to put this over the radio, the TV, if we were to uh, broadcast it in every way possible through the newspapers, and we were to say, we want everybody to be here next Sunday because God is going to speak to people. God is going to actually speak to people. We'd pack this place out and we wouldn't have enough room. We'd have to to put uh, speakers out into the street and everywhere else. People would flock for miles to hear God speak. But when they came and they finally saw that I got up to preach the word of God, many of them probably would start throwing everything in their hand at me. We thought we were going to hear God speak. Dear ones, when the minister of Christ speaks and proclaims the word of God, God is speaking to you and you are to obey and listen to it. Martin Luther, and I close with this quote. Martin Luther, a little lengthy, but listen very closely. Martin Luther said this in a sermon from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Observe how Paul extols and exalts Scripture And the witness of the written word by using and repeating the phrase, according to the scriptures. He does so in the first place in order to restrain the wild spirits who despise scripture and public preaching and look for other private revelations instead. Nowadays, such spirits are found swarming everywhere, deranged by the devil regarding Scripture a dead letter, extolling nothing but the Spirit and yet keeping neither the Word nor the Spirit. But there you hear St. Paul adducing Scripture as his strongest witness and pointing out that there is nothing stable to support our doctrine and faith accept the material or written word put down in letters and preached verbally by him and others, for it is clearly stated here, Scripture, Scripture. Therefore, you had better not boast much about the Spirit if you do not have the visible external word, for it will surely not be a good spirit, but the wretched devil from hell. Dear ones, the test of orthodoxy. For God's people, the test which will assure you before God that you belong to Him is that you remain in the church of Jesus Christ. That you confess, believe in, and follow the Christ of the Bible. And that you are taught and led by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we plead with you today to assure the hearts of your people before you. And Father, we pray that you would take the same word, the same truth, That you would use it to convict our hearts, to motivate us to greater faithfulness unto you, our God. That you would take your word and that you would convict us of our sin. That you would draw us unto Christ to see that our union with Jesus Christ is a living and abiding union with a real person not with a dead hero. Oh God, we pray that you would make our faith alive. That the Spirit of God, that anointing which we have received from God, would produce within us every good fruit. Father, we thank you again for your holy word. What a blessing it is to us and how you encourage us to remain and to persevere in the truth. We praise you, our God, for Christ's sake. Amen.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need.